This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is off for today doing presentations in Chicago. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, and our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the user guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. An interesting show lined up for you today. Uh, the markets are nervous about trade talks between China and the U.S. We had a deal, and then... Trump came in and added some additional tariffs that are going into effect essentially today. Our first guest is going to address the outlook for China and the uh, and the trade deal that we might be getting, and as well as the overall investing climate in Asia. The, the second half of the show, we're going to be discussing an interesting new report from the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank with one of the economists who is focused on community development research, uh, and he's going to be coming for the, from, uh, from Philly Fed here. It's going to be exciting to, to talk to him. Um, but my first guest is joining us uh, by phone from London. He's David Lai, a partner and co-chief investment officer of Premier Partners, which is based in Hong Kong. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. Welcome to our program. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Um, it's so- my pleasure. So I, I just want to say one quick thing about Wisdom Tree uh, and Premia. We've uh, engaged Premia partners to support Wisdom Tree with respect to our ETFs and marketing and general education activities in Asia. Uh, they're sort of really interesting experts on the ground. Uh, and so, so David, uh, you, maybe you tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, you've been a portfolio manager on China Securities uh, and based there in Hong Kong. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and some of the, the activities that, that you've done before. Yeah, sure. I have been uh, investing in China, uh, greater China market in the past two decades. Uh, most of the time we'll be in the active side, uh, managing uh, the off-rights fund, uh, profit fund, uh, some institutional mandates, and also the um, the segregated uh, accounts for clients. And then in the past uh, around seven to eight years time, I, uh, other than uh, the active side, I also start invested uh uh, on the uh, UTF and also the uh, passive vehicles, uh, including index funds. So uh, has been investing for China in both onshore and offshore. So uh, shop list in Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, Hong Kong, and USADR as well. So just at a at a very high level, um, how do you handicap uh, the situation? I mean, the, everybody's focused on are we going to get a trade deal? Maybe you could describe the situation as you see it from your perspective from Hong Kong, what's what's the current the status of the deal? Mm. I think right before last weekend, uh, most of the people has been quite uh, uh, expecting a very smooth uh, trade deal between the U.S. and China. But then comes the uh, Trump trip, 
uh, it is definitely create some hiccups in the market. I think the, uh, the impact to the U.S. side maybe seems to be much more mild. But if you look at the impact to the, uh, the China market, uh, it seems to be a little bit bigger. Uh, so far, the market uh, correct around 10%. So it did surprise uh, the market. Uh, I think uh, nobody knows exactly what really happened uh, beside the two parties involved. Uh, but I guess right now the, the, the fact is uh, the tariffs have been increased uh, on the 200 billion uh, goods. Uh, so, uh, but I, right now, I think the base case for most of the market participants is that there will be a trade deal because uh, no trade deal is definitely a disaster for both the U.S. and China. Uh, but it would be more likely to be a delayed trade deal with further negotiation going forward. Yeah, no, everybody thought we might, the, the expectations were starting to come so that we'd have a deal this week, um, but it doesn't seem that we are, uh, and it, it seems like Trump's put some additional pressure. He wants them to come to a deal, and so he's sort of putting these tariffs on, and then China's going to vow to retaliate and bring on some additional measures, um, but they say there is possibility. Um, so how do, you, how do you see overall sentiment in Asia? I mean, as you're talking to clients, um, do they, I mean, the markets rebounded strongly this year. I mean, are they starting to mm-hmm. want to increase exposure? Do they think it's sort of already priced in and that's sort of just repricing because now there's a little bit of risk back of the deal not happening? Mm-hmm. How, how do you see sentiment? I think as sentiment advice, uh, people are uncertain, definitely, because uh, the news is now is quite, it's quite uh, just reason. Yeah. So nobody knows exactly uh, what ex- uh, the outcome could be. Uh, but some in- investors, when I talk to them, uh, have an interesting angle to look at this. I'm not sure whether you from the U.S. side uh, could give them some feedback as well. Because uh, a lot of people think that this is definitely a tactic used by Trump, as the, uh, the recent data from the U.S. economy has been pretty strong and should be somehow able to absorb uh, a certain short-term shock. Uh, so otherwise, um, if you think about in terms of timing, it may also be an intention for Trump to lengthen the discussion and bargain for more favorable terms uh, for uh, gaining more brownie points for the voters, uh, uh, particularly expect, uh, expecting the election is coming next year. So this would be a, like... Uh, uh, sort of like a delayed tactic used by Trump. Uh, but eventually, there will be a deal, but maybe uh, leading to the um, public thinking that China has been giving more favorable terms to the U.S. Uh, in the process. Yeah. So when, when you see, you know, what's been happening in, in sort of the Chinese markets and, and sort of the Asia's market, I mean, there's a lot of big developments. I mean, one of the news stories this year was MSCI was going to start adding more mm. exposure yeah. to A shares. Uh, you said you mentioned you're looking at A shares and other shares, uh, sort of onshore and offshore, as they call it. How do you think about just the overall valuations of China and sort of the opportunity in China? Is it Did it just get fully priced in or is there still more right. opportunity? It's a very good question. Um, I think the stock market impact, definitely there is uh, some uh, uh, selling uh, in, a, in the past few days. But having said that, we have been talking to clients in the past couple of months. Most of the uh, issue or complaint from the client is that the rally has been too strong in the first few months. Uh, China Asia has been up like three, 
30 to 40 percent uh, in the first four months this year. So they find it really hard uh, to get an entry point to get into the, uh, the Asia exposure. And most of them, before this Trump trip, uh, most of them has been looking for like around 10 percent kind of a correction to get in. So I, I believe that uh, it may be a good time window for investors to accumulate China Asia at the moment. Because uh, if you think about it, as you mentioned, the MSCI effect, yes, it's already been announced. But if you think about the flow itself, it starts kicking in at the end of May, uh, August, and November this year only. And particularly, even if people have been saying that, oh, most of the uh, positive factors should have to be priced in. But if you think about that, by the end of this year, the inclusion itself is only taking 20% of the total 100%. So there is remaining 80% to be included yet in the next coming years. So uh, I expect this, just in terms of flow-wise, to still be quite positive uh, other than uh, current the hiccup. So the hiccup, when it's done deal, when the dust settles down, uh, people will start looking at the fundamental. When you mention about the valuation, it's a very good point is that if you look at China, Asia right now, it's, it's talking about uh, trading at around uh, forward multiple 12 times uh, PE. Uh, it is relatively low compared to most of the other developed market and emerging market. Uh, particularly when we're still talking about the economy, is still growing around 6% and earnings still around like high single digits. Uh, it's still a very decent, uh, comfortable level for investors to get in. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with David Lai, the co-chief investment officer at Premia Partners, a Hong Kong-based uh, investment firm. And it's, yeah, David was just talking about the, the the large rally in China. David, I put up a chart of the CSI 500, which was up 40% uh, through middle mm-hmm. of April. Now it's only up 20%. So the gains, half the gains were eroded. <laughs> right, uh, there's some other right. indexes that are maybe in the mid-30s are now up 20. So yeah, mm-hmm. they, they definitely had a pullback. I mean, it's interesting... You know, I think there's part of this this trade negotiation, people say, and just stepping back to the long term, what you just talked about, that, you know, is China growing at 6%, but if you say they have 12 PE multiples for the A shares, um, and how that compares to history, but also then the longer term profit growth, I mean, how do you see the, the trends in the in the China economy and, and the types of companies with, with different types of profit growth? You guys look at China a number of different ways. How do you sort of mm. handicap the two, or sort of different types of exposure? that you can get in China? Mm. Um, I think when we look at China, uh, a lot of investors are trying to uh, capture the growth angle in China. It's not really particular looking for very cheap uh, or value play uh, in the emerging market. So if we're thinking about that, uh, I think new economy as a, as a segment or as a theme will be very in line with the underlying fundamental structural change in the economy. So let's say that China uh, is undergoing the con- uh, consumption upgrading, the aging population, and also the urbanization, and particularly the technological advancement. When we think about that, all this kind of uh, uh, trend probably may not benefit uh, the oil company uh, or the, uh, uh, the, uh, the power company utility or even uh, some... Uh, SOE state enterprise banks is more focusing on the like consumption 
the the healthcare, IT, and some selective uh, industrial. So all this sector with the theme of the new economy, uh, I think will have faster growth uh, in the next few years time, and also uh, we will enjoy the uh, uh, a better valuation multiple in the stock market. Yeah, one of the things I've been talking a lot about is exactly, uh, and you and I haven't talked about this yet, but it's one of the themes that I talk about is sort of ex-state-owned versus state-owned investing in China. And, you know, when I look at the valuation spread between the broad indexes of ex-state-owned indexes, uh, I mean, I see like three to four P multiple points higher than the market because you don't have the five mm. PE banks and a little bit less in the right. energy companies. But I think that three PE multiple point spread in a lot of ways is worth it in the sense that I think back to sort of the growth value divide in the U.S. markets 10 years ago and the the spreads compressed and growth stocks should trade higher than low PE value stocks. And the spread became mm. narrow enough for growth to outperform. Um, or outperform handily because of just how much faster the growth was. And somewhat I think about China the same way. Um, you know, do you, am, am I, I, am I just being consensus there or is there another, is, what, do you, what do you think about that? I think there, yeah, there's a definitely uh, can look at the, the market in this perspective. Uh, trying to distinguish the ownership structure, whether it's the SOE or SOE. Uh, private enterprise would have a higher uh, the uh, return on equities and taking care of the shareholder uh, uh, interest. But at the same time, uh, some SOE do have some investor angle. It depends on the some whether the investor appetite, because uh, some of the industry are still quite strict, uh, not really allowing some private uh, company to to really uh, uh, engage in the business. So it really depends if, let's say, if some of the investors really just only looking at the, uh, some banks or like the telecom company or like power company, then most of the time they would find that uh, SOE would be the major player in the field, in the sectors. So it's almost unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, the underlying is more important is looking at the quality itself. So whether uh, we cannot blame that all SOE would be bad or, or particular uh, not doing well to the shareholder. It all depends on the uh, management culture, the, the corporate, uh, how they do, how they want the business. So uh, I think quality screen is definitely very important. Uh, so instead of uh, some investor, when they look at the market itself, looking at the standard market cap uh, index, uh, I think they may start, can start looking at some more like quality factors or market high factors kind of uh, uh, index, which it's not only relying on the market cap itself, rather it look at uh, different multiple tools uh, for some stock. So that would be another interesting angle to look at. Yeah, very interesting. Um, what, the, the other thing people say is you could think about some of the sector shifts that come when you think about removing you know, the state. Um, you get you know, underweights to financials and banks and energy and more to the tech. And then the question is, well, can you really remove the state from tech? And you have all these articles on you know, the surveillance that the, the state's doing through the, the tech companies. Any, any commentary mm. on that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, also quite interesting to look at that. Uh, I think given the Chinese uh, current uh, uh, situation, it's hard to distinguish completely that the company itself is running without any inference from the government. Yeah. Uh, let's say a lot of uh, new economy stocks, 
uh, or digital kind of uh, internet play. Uh, a lot of regulation and policy are still quite new and, and subject to the changes and subject to further regulation. Uh, so the inference from the, the government will be there. But of course, whether it is like the state-owned enterprise, having all the board member, all the management run by government official, uh, I think most of these uh, companies, they still have the leeway. They still have the flexibility or, or freedom uh, to run their company by themselves. But uh, some very important kind of a policy they may have to follow. Let's say in terms of the gaming sector, uh, when the government say that uh, they are not allowed or they try to limit the usage from the teenagers or uh, youth uh, population or the gamers, then the companies, uh, they have to follow. So they have to subject to that kind of rule. So it's not direct uh, control by the government, but they're subject to the regulation, just like every other industry, that they have to be. Uh, I, I won't say that is, uh, is a big change that, oh, all of this uh, company uh, becoming the, the SOE-like. Uh, it's not that case. Uh, they are still very profit-driven, very uh, kind of looking at their shareholder interests uh, uh, at their priority. Um, when you think about the um, the overall other opportunities in Asia, I mean, how are you handicapping you know the the, the climate in Asia generally speaking? Mm, yes, I think some of the uh, clients we when we talk to them uh, when they think China is also when this this kind of situation, what if uh, they already have exposure in China? They don't want to add at the moment. And is there any other opportunities? Uh, we say yes. Uh, particular when we look at some country or economy, could be benefit from the U.S. and China trade war. Uh, for example, uh, the ASEAN. I think uh, ASEAN as a, uh, as a cluster of economies has been kind of forgotten by a lot of investors. Maybe describe uh, ASEAN before you get into it. Like, what are the countries oh, sure. in yes. the ASEAN oh, sorry. region there? I'm thinking about our, our regional perspective, knowing ASEAN, what is ASEAN. So ASEAN is, a, is, a, is an alliance uh, of the Southeast Asia countries. So basically it contains uh, 10 major economies. Uh, but I would say in terms of the stock market definition, it's usually involving like four to five countries. Uh, for the exposure that I particularly like is the overall emerging ASEAN. So let's say excluding Singapore, but uh, including like China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and Vietnam. So these are the much uh, uh, younger, younger economies. They have a very young population. Uh, with an FHA of around 27 or 28 years old. And then they have over, uh, almost over 700 million people. It's a very big population. And they are still fairly low in terms of a GDP per capita. So they have the potential to grab a lot of business uh, from China and from the, uh, uh, the tension between the U.S. and China. Before the, this kind of uh, 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 trade deal issue, uh, a lot of supply chain has already been shifting uh, from the high-cost uh, North Asia to the uh, low-cost ASEAN country. But now, the U.S. and China, uh, the struggle in trade will, lead, will actually accelerate the process. So we have been to uh, seeing a lot of uh, factory has been moving uh, to the uh, Vietnam, uh, to Philippines. Particularly, the cost, when we look at the labor cost itself, uh, the, the gap is massive. 
for example, Vietnam labor or and Philippine labor right now are almost 60 to 70 percent discount from China. So uh, a lot of factory or production uh, line, they will have a big saving uh, from only the labors, not even talking about the land or the, uh, the building and also the, the uh, logistic cost. It will be uh, uh, a big saving. Um, Other than the tariff effect. Yeah, I mean, let me just reintroduce our guest one more time here. We're talking with David Lai, the co-chief investment officer at Premier Partners, talking about the opportunities in Asia from the trade deal. And you did see, you know, part of the trade, how much of this is just what you're just talking about, the the drop in wages that they could get and these other things like land and, and just the cost of doing business with lower cost of living in these other countries. Uh, but then the trade deal was accelerating some move to, was it Vietnam? Is that one of the, 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 the biggest beneficiaries? Or how do you see the, that where people were starting to diversify their, their China exposures from? Mm. I think uh, uh, it is an angle because uh, let's say Vietnam is a frontier market. It's not even an emerging market. Uh, from a lot of investor uh, perspective, uh, is uh, even uh, more uh, sort of exotic in a sense that. Uh, uh, but in a, when we look at Vietnam as itself, it has 90 million people, very young population, very low cost, and uh, China and Korea. Japan, all these countries are putting a lot of investment into the country right now. And uh, so we see very exciting picture uh, when we look at the uh, consumption side, uh, uh, also the, uh, the, the industrial uh, and also infrastructure, utility, and also even the banking, financial, a lot of needs has been uh, 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 there. So we think that it should be very interesting. Uh, when we look at some uh, indexes' performance, uh, let's say the MSCI Vietnam has been uh, also performing uh, quite good uh, uh, this year. And and how are our investors? Are they able to start getting access? I mean, it is a, it's a, it it's not in the major indexes yet. I guess it is in those frontier indexes, um, but they're mm. starting to open up a little bit. The volumes becoming bigger, more liquidities being able to to get access to those markets. How do you think about that? Yes. Yes. Uh, right now, the the vehicle to to go into Vietnam is uh, quite limited, I would say. Uh, so it uh, it uh, it need more um, uh, product potentially, which should be should be launched. Uh, but interestingly, look at the market itself. I think there is a very uh, uh, just like a high likelihood to follow China uh, to get into the emerging market status. Uh, I think Pussy has already put them into the watch list, uh, so a potential upgrading. MSCI will be doing the same as long as the market is keep opening. Uh, right now, the vehicle, the asset is limited. And also, if investors want to go direct, they also subject to some foreign ownership limit. So it's not an easy way to do that. So potentially, uh, 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 some passive vehicle to, to have an asset there will be a very good uh, for investors going forward. Yeah, very good. So how how else, what are the other opportunities that you guys think about when you think about just the broadest, you know, your focus on Asia with your perch in Hong Kong? Um, what what are some of the, as you think back on the markets, I mean, what, what's your, anything that you're you're looking out for over the, over the coming year? Hmm. Uh, 
I think right now the focus is still in this region, I would say, because uh, uh, a lot of uh, investors, when we talk to them, uh, we're, quite, we're still quite uh, concerned about the uh, Europe situation. And uh, for the U.S., uh, some of them may already have exposure. Uh, some of them even thinking about whether they should trim a little bit, because given the, the bull market has been running for so long, and they have a very uh, fixed profit uh, in the pocket. And, uh, and the overall EM, some of the market in the EM is not particularly attractive compared to uh, the Asia. So I think a lot of interest uh, when we're talking to clients, when we look at the, the fundamentals, Asia, it seems to be standing out. Let's say when, I, uh, when we talk briefly about the Asian earlier, uh, we didn't really mention the fundamental, let's say the GDP data. I think the GDP this year, we are still talking about around 5 to 5.5%. Uh, and uh, Vietnam itself is talking about 6 to 6.5, uh, or slightly, or even slightly higher than China. Uh, so the region itself is still very attractive. And in terms of evaluation, it's already come down uh, from the recent correction. And particularly good thing is the, uh, the overall central bank has been uh, quite uh, cautious in tightening the liquidity uh, since the U.S. Uh, started uh, stopping the wait high last year. I think the ECB and JCB also, uh, JGB also uh, 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 remain quite dovish uh, in terms of the, uh, how they handle liquidity. So the overall EM should be performing relatively better. Uh, when we look at the, also the earnings gap, this year and next year. Uh, if you look at last year, the U.S. earnings was like 24% compared to EM is around 6 to 7%. But this year, the picture will look completely different in the sense that uh, the EM uh, is around like uh, uh, 10 to 11%, while the U.S. is around single digit. And the same thing will remain in 2020 in next year. So in terms of the earning gap, is already completely changed, and also the valuation is trading at a discount to the U.S. market. Uh, I would say that the, the client in this region, uh, uh, and from our research, we are still quite uh, keen to look at uh, Asia, uh, China, ASEAN, and particularly like Vietnam. Uh, some of another theme that some client may look at is about the technology side, the innovation in Asia, because uh, a lot of people are talking about FANG in the U.S., uh, but they don't really talking about a lot of things uh, or a lot of vehicle to invest in Asia. But if you look at the PE and BG, how they invest, probably 50% they invest in U.S., 50% in Asia. So I think if there is a particular uh, vehicle that looking at the uh, Asia innovative technology that will be uh, relatively interested for a lot of uh, 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 investors. Very interesting. Uh, we're in our final two minutes here. Um, any sort of closing thoughts as, as the way that Premia looks at the markets and as from your co-CIO spot? I mean, you, a lot of your work is also going away from just pure cap weighting. Any sort of final statements about the way you guys look at the markets? Sure. Um, I think uh, given the current situation, uh, I think we should not become too panicked about what really happened because uh, there is always this kind of a short-term volatility. Uh, even if people thinking about the, the trade deal may not be working very well, but in a sense, if you think about that, uh, the Chinese government will even 
uh, introduce more liquidity to the market. Uh, so there is uh, the, there is a more likely to see a market rebound uh, or recovery going forward instead of uh, 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 all the way keep going down. Uh, that is one way how we look at the China market. And in terms of uh, how investors should, uh, the way to invest, it's not strictly looking at the market cap approach because uh, it's only buying the biggest stock, which could you nowhere. Uh, instead, people should look at different factors. Uh, if there is a vehicle that provides uh, use with, let's say, the China exposure, but with a uh, uh, tilted uh, uh, angle, including different factors that would be uh, more interesting, particularly when we look at China going forward uh, in the medium term to long term, new economy as a theme is definitely working very well. Very good. It's, uh, it's, it's great to get you know, the expert from the region on the, on, the, on the phone with us. David, thank you so much for taking time from uh, your travels to, to London here to, to share some of your insights on all that's going on in Asia. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, we've been talking with David Lai, who's the co-chief investment officer of Premier Partners, a, a Hong Kong-based uh, investment firm. And you know, the next half hour, we're going to be talking the opportunity types of jobs with the Philadelphia Fed. Uh, we're going to need to take a short break, but please come back. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and my next guest is Keith Wardrop, who is the Community Development Research Manager at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. He's one of the authors of a report of what are known as opportunity occupations. Keith, thanks for coming across town to our Wharton studio here. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got to the Philadelphia Fed and what it is that you focus on there. Sure. So I'm the Community Development Research Manager at the Philadelphia Fed. I've been there for about eight years. And my department um, does work to promote community and economic development for low and moderate income communities. And so when when you're working to promote that development, and what are the type of topics that you researched in your past uh, before you got there? So I've done some research uh, prior to joining the Fed on affordable housing. Since joining the Fed, I've focused more on employment, labor markets, economic inclusion more generally, um, philanthropic grant making to support community development, um, the fiscal capacity of, of revitalizing cities in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. It kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. And so this this research on opportunity occupations, I think I saw you guys did a, your first paper maybe in 2015, and then you updated something for 2019. That's right. Maybe sort of outline as you see the broad spectrum of employment. Like what are what is it that you're that you're focused on in this new research? So um, if I could, I'll tell you a little bit about how, about how we came to this topic because Great. I think that's that's important context. Yeah. So as many of your listeners know, I'm sure, the, one of the Federal Reserve's functions is to promote maximum sustainable economic growth. And we know that uh, economic growth is stronger when everyone has an opportunity to participate. We also know that workers without a college degree are at a disadvantage in the labor market when compared with those who have a college degree when it comes to earnings and employment rates. And then lastly, we know that where you live directly affects your economic opportunities. It affects the types of jobs that are available. It affects how much they pay. And it also affects what kind of education employers are looking for when they're trying to fill those positions. So my colleagues and I wanted to do some research on, uh, that helps us understand the extent and nature of employment opportunities for the two-thirds of American adults who do not have a four-year college degree. 
I mean, what's interesting is there's some, and we'll drill into all this research. I mean, there's some narrative in the in the community, the finance community, that the Fed is they all their programs since the financial crisis of supporting, you know, with the QE program created this wealth inequality gap, and that it was all designed to support the equity markets, which went to the rich and not support the low income. It's interesting that your research is really showing that there's a big focus at the Fed on how do you solve inequality and how can you, well, how can you promote the the shrinking of that gap? That's right. Each of the 12 uh, Federal Reserve Banks has a community development function like ours. And we're focused on economic mobility and resilience for low-income communities specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Nobody probably really talks about that. They talk about the QE programs. Yeah. They talk about the interest rate policies. We, we are a well-kept secret. No, so let's let's drill into it. So what are, as you think about the trends that are creating that growing gap, I mean, what what? how do you see, you know, the unemployment, there's a lot of research on the unemployment trends for those with a college degree and those without, and I guess the college degree unemployment is at the is well below even the the general. Even though we're at a fifty year low in unemployment, the one with the college degree is even lower. That's right. So right. So uh, what the the research from the BLS has shown is that um, workers or, or individuals without a college degree are almost twice as likely to be unemployed, even in the strong economy that we see today. And uh, they, workers with uh, with only a high school diploma make only about sixty cents on the dollar as compared to somebody with a college degree. So I think it is important, as you mentioned, with uh, increasing inequality, to to uh, identify um, the jobs that are that do pay good wages for, uh, as I said, the sixty eight percent of American adults who don't have a four year degree. And, and there is some of this concern as you think about trends of job growth over time. There's fears about automation and how is that going to take jobs. Um, now, there, there's some also thoughts about what are the types of jobs that can be automated and where where will there be skills? And I was sort of looking at some of your lists of the top, what you call opportunity occupation. Maybe sort of walk through some of the key findings of the what, – what defined the opportunity occupation and then we'll go through what some of them were. I'd love to. So we studied 121 of the largest metropolitan areas in the country, and we found that about 22% of total employment meets our definition of opportunity employment. Yeah. And by opportunity employment, what, what we mean, uh, we're talking about jobs that do not require a four-year college degree and that typically pay above the national annual median wage after we adjust for the cost of living. So the national annual median wage in 2017 was around $37,700. And it, um, when you adjust for the cost of living, it falls to roughly $33,000 in Springfield, Missouri, which was the lowest cost metro, and um, over 47000 almost $48,000 in San Jose, California, which was the highest cost metro. And New York's got to be got to be close to high up there. It's it's right up there with San Jose. That's right. And what about right. Philadelphia, our, our, t- our hometown here? Philadelphia is – I think the cost of living in Philadelphia is 6% above the national average. Okay. So so the, the, the wage threshold – we call it the wage threshold um, – yeah. was around $39,000 or so in Philadelphia. And so for employment that fell above that wage threshold, we divided it into two groups um, – Opportunity employment, if it didn't require a college degree, and then higher paying work that does require a college degree. And for employment that falls below that wage threshold, we classify that, of course, as lower lower wage employment. And so what mm. are the – if 
what are the types of jobs that fall into this opportunity employment that have that above average wage, but you don't need the college degree? Right. So I think this is one of the most surprising findings um, for for the reader. Uh, I think people often um, consider jobs and uh, blue collar manual labor, maybe manufacturing. Um, to be uh, the, the sort of top of mind jobs when we give this definition. And what we find is that um, the kind of work, the kinds of occupations really run the gamut. They, they vary uh, greatly. So we find jobs in healthcare, such as registered nurses and licensed practical nurses. We find jobs in the skilled trades, like carpenters and electricians, supervisory positions, so supervisors of retail sales, supervisors of construction workers. Um, and then jobs in office and administrative support, um, computer support specialists. Uh, really, you, you can find an opportunity occupation almost anywhere you look. Um, but as I said, only about 22% of total employment in, these, in the metro areas we studied meets our definition. I mean, it's interesting. I see on the list, um, you know, plumbers, pipe fitters, and steam fitters as the projected change for the next 10 years is the top projected change. And then registered nurses being up there, that's demographics and the aging. We all need that. Heating, air conditioning, and refrigeration mechanics. I, I have a personal anecdote on that. Um, as you get older, you move to the suburbs, you get a, a refrigerator, and it breaks down. <laughs> and the guy who comes to fix it's like, there's just there's so little of these people available. Like he's the last one in his company. I mean, it's sort of an interesting anecdote, but talking about more people need to go in these types of jobs. Right. So we were using, I think, I think the, the numbers you're referring to are from the BLS. They are employment projections uh, between 2016 and 2026. And the, so the BLS sort of estimated how much um, work in each of these occupations is expected to grow. And what we found is that more than half of the 25 largest opportunity occupations are expected to grow faster than the overall economy. Uh, and you mentioned some. Uh, the skilled trades and healthcare in particular seem to be well-placed well for growth in the coming years. Um, and earlier you talked, we, you talked about automation. What we find is that only a handful of the largest opportunity occupations are considered to be at high risk of job loss as a result of automation. And those are primarily in office and administrative support, so jobs like secretaries and accounting clerks. Well, you see one of them, well, the second on the largest opportunity occupations today with about a million jobs was heavy and tractor-trailer truck drivers, which uh, if we're led to believe uh, self-driving cars, maybe more of these self-driving automobiles, you think that in 10 years' time is a realistic thing that they'll they'll be able to automate? So uh, the, our report does focus on sort of the economy today. It absolutely makes sense to look forward. And I believe that others have, have projected that truck, the uh, jobs in truck driving should uh, fall off a little bit because of the automa automation that you're talking about. How soon do you think that will come, do you think? You know, that, that's hard to project. There is actually someone on Penn's campus, Steve Vaselli. I'm not sure if you've met him. Not yet. But he, uh, he has studied for the last number of years exactly the issue of automation and, and truck driving. Interesting. Yeah. We'll have to find him. That's right. Uh, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're, we're talking with Keith Wardrip, who's the Community Development Research Manager at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank, about uh, a great new updated report on opportunity occupations um, and the trends and what it means for employment and how they can support uh, this type of, of, of research at the Philly Fed. Um, what it, When you think about what else the implications of your research is, I mean, how do you think people – I mean, what – should use the the findings like what if if people are listening in 
and they want one of these jobs? Like, what are the types of things that people can should be trying to do? No, that's a great question. I, you know, I think how one wants to make a living is a really individualized and, and personal decision. But I think the reality is, and, and the statistics show, that not everyone can or chooses to go to college. Uh, I think it's important to put information in the hands of today's students, uh, today's workers, and the community at large um, so that um, everyone has awareness about the types of work that, that, um, that does pay a decent wage and that one doesn't need a college degree for. It might help, and we can talk about sort of the community-level implications later, but it might help um, economic development efforts when, when communities are thinking about what types of jobs are we going to try to support and grow. Um, it might help, uh, like I said, the students um, consider a career path or a career destination and, and, and learn more about the ways into, into, that, um, into that job. Uh, you know, I mentioned that the types of work uh, is really varied across the largest 25 opportunity occupations. But you may have noticed as I was reading down the list that very few of these jobs can someone um, expect to attain without some level of on-the-job experience, yeah. education, or training after high school. I mean, what was interesting, we were just talking about it before we, we started broadcasting here, um, we, in our first you know, a few years ago, we had uh, Pat Harker, the Philadelphia Fed president. He was a Wharton dean. And, you know, I got to know him when he was here at Wharton. And he was on the show. And it might have been surprising. People go back and listen to our, our replay of that from a few years ago. He talked about having been a dean of Wharton, less people should actually go to job college. More people should actually go to these apprenticeship type on-the-job trainings. Um, is that something that you see? Is that something that you're trying to advocate for from the Philadelphia Fed perspective? You know, I, 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 wouldn't, um, I wouldn't suggest that there is a one-size-fits-all approach. I really do think it's a personal decision for each, for each student, yeah. uh, each worker. Uh, I, I don't think it makes sense to go to college because that's what, that's what one is supposed to do. I think that to the extent that um, you know, a 17 or 18-year-old can, can, can consider what they'd like to do professionally – and then be thoughtful about the kind of education, training, or experiences that are required to to achieve that goal. Yeah. And if, it, if a job, if, if if someone wants to be a carpenter, or wants to be a um, you know a truck driver, uh, I, then I'm not sure that college is a good inv- a four year college degree is a good investment. Yeah. And is there is there enough apprenticeships? Like, are the companies doing enough? How can they? How how can you try to help broaden the the outreach there? You know, I, I feel like um, we hear a lot about uh, the inability of employers to find qualified workers, right? And uh, I can't speak to any individual case, but I can say that employers might be able to be a little more proactive and work with um, community colleges, work with the workforce development sector. If they're having difficulty finding skilled workers, they can sort of co-create the curricula to make sure that those who are receiving the workforce training have the skills they need um, to to fill their open positions productively. So I think that I think that uh, employers could play a more active and engaged role potentially yep. in the training of workers. Was there anything on the cities uh, that was interesting in terms of where you know people are looking for different cities? Where were these opportunity jobs higher? Where were they lower in terms of 
you know, if you if you're you know without the college degree, but you want to make these better wages, where to where to move? You no, know, I think that's a really important point, and I'm glad you asked the question. Um, as I said, about 22% of employment overall meets our definition of opportunity employment. But when you look at the levels regionally, you see a lot of differentiation. So um, the high that we found was in Toledo. 34% of employment in Toledo meets our definition of opportunity employment. And the low is in Washington, D.C., where it's 146 hmm. So there's a 20 20 percentage point spread between those two places. All you have are politicians and lawyers. Well, exactly. That's right. I mean, so in, in, in Washington, D.C., you do have a lot of higher wage work, but a lot of it requires uh, a bachelor's degree or, or more. Yeah. Right. Uh, in Toledo, their economy is a little more dependent on manufacturing. Uh, and so there are just more uh, more of these types of jobs available in the Toledo economy. But it's also worth mentioning that we found that um, places with lower cost of living had a higher level of opportunity employment. That is interesting. Should, and then your second highest was in Anchorage, Alaska, where uh, I've actually had the opportunity to go to Alaska for work a few times. And it's a, I like to keep going back. It's not easy <laughs> to get to, but it's, uh, it, would, it would be a nice lifestyle out there. That's, I've never been. I've never. Been. I've not been to many of the, of the 121 metros we studied, unfortunately. But to. we did find, uh, unlike Anchorage, we found that uh, there were a disproportionate number of of, um, of high opportunity places in the Midwest. Yeah. Because in the Midwest, costs are generally lower, uh, and the wages are are more than adequate to cover those costs. Whereas in places like, you know, San Jose and New York, as we were talking about earlier, the costs are so high that the wages don't fully compensate for those higher costs. Um, I was looking at – so you had – to the point on lower wage employment, um, there was sort of an interesting stat that you know, the, the general amount of lower wage employment was um, – was it 50 million jobs, 50 percent? It was around 50 percent. That's right. And that's kind of by construction. That's sort of how the, we did the methodology, right? Because we set our wage threshold at the national annual median. Yeah. And we did adjust it for cost of living, but by and large, you're going to have half of employment fall below that level and half above. And then you had a a stat on eight of the 11 places um, in terms of having 60 to 70 percent low wage. So instead of half, it's like two-thirds to 70 percent in low wage, and, and of that was California and Florida. Anything about those two states, California and Florida, that had that characteristic? You know, I think it's it's just a collision of higher cost and lower wage, lower industries and in, in, um, that that pay lower wages. Uh, the, I think the highest in that regard was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, actually, and almost seventy three percent of employment mm-hmm. in Myrtle Beach was classified as as lower wage employment. So when you think about what the Philadelphia Fed or even just the Fed group generally is going to use with all this research, so you've done some interesting work. How, how is the Fed going to use it? So I think doing the research is sort of the first step. And in, in my community development department, we also have an outreach team. And, um, and it's the outreach team's role to help us share the research in the community. So I, I take every opportunity I get, including this one, yeah. to help um, talk about to talk about the research, to help um, spread the messages. And I think what we hope in an ideal scenario is that we can um, use the research to start important conversations. We have a um, we have a convening role. We can host events and invite community leaders and stakeholders 
to um, to discuss the research, to see how it resonates with the, with them, and to see if there are any local solutions to expanding employment opportunities for less educated workers. I mean, it sounds like you even got to get it before they leave high school. I mean, it's sort of a matter of on the job. Well, it's preparing people as they go from high school to what are they going to do in their future lives and really trying to help career trajectories of, hey, you know, and especially with the whole student debt dynamics, right? There's this big problem in student debt and you say people are taking out all this money and are they getting training for something that's going to be productive? Right, exactly. And I, and I, I feel like that um, we shouldn't lead students to believe that when they leave high school, they have one of two options. They can either go to college or they can make uh, only a little bit of money, right? There, there, there is some space in between those two options. Yeah. And this research, I think, kind of fills that void and, and does provide some, some career options and career paths to, to students who, again, for whatever reason, uh, do not go to college. Um, and how how do you respond to the criticisms that the feds created this inequality? Do you do you buy into any of that that argument? You know, th- thankfully, I don't often get that criticism. Um, you know, our work does focus specifically on on um, on re- on research and outreach um, to the uh, low income communities and 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 their and inter- intermediaries. Um, that that I think that question's a little above my pay grade. Well, it's right in what you're working on. I mean, it's um, because you're working on you're you're showing that the Fed is not just thinking about that. They're working on everything, um, but the, they do get criticized for that. And I hope this, like you said, I hope this is proof proof positive that, yeah. that the Fed does have a role in uh, in expanding economic resilience and mobility for these for these communities. And the extent that we can that we can share this work again through this through this interview and others, yeah. um, hopefully we can have an impact. Um, what did any other things on when you think about the broad economic trends and developments that you mentioned, you had in your prior lives done some more work on affordable housing. Like is, is housing affordable today? Like where, you know, interest rates are in some ways as I mean, I think about the cost of debt and what you can get for where interest rates are and it, it, that helps with affordability. But how, how are you looking at anything, anything from how this work on jobs leads to affordable on, on the housing side? Sure. No, that, that, that's a good question because the housing affordability does – or the cost of housing ties directly into this research um, in that the housing is typically the largest item on, in somebody's budget, yeah. right? And housing affordability is a function both of the cost of housing uh, but, also, um, but also the wages, the income that someone has to pay for it, right? Uh, and what we, what we found is that um, uh, because – Opportunity employment is less common in high-cost places. Communities could consider uh, modest wage increases to bring to to um, bring costs and, and incomes into better alignment, or potentially consider affordable housing solutions to lower the costs. Right? If if wages are are are, um, are not as as negotiable or or, or stickier, uh, potentially lowering the cost of housing could make lower wage employment more sustainable for a worker. Um. Any other places uh, of research that, that you're focused on? What's on your further agenda? You know, one thing that, that some colleagues of mine and I are looking into is um, trying to um, analyze the skills that employers are asking for when they're, when they're filling jobs. So one data set that we used in this research was purchased from Burning Glass Technologies. Okay. And Burning Glass uh, scrapes the internet uh, for all online job postings and converts each job posting into a record in a data set that tells us where the job's located, 
what the job what the job is and what level of education employers are looking for, and additionally what skills they're looking for in the applicants. And what we found in this research is that um, for some of these middle skills opportunity occupations, the level of education that employers are seeking varies widely from mm-hmm. metro to metro. So, for example, for executive secretaries, in one metropolitan area, 26% of jobs were available to somebody without a college degree. In another, it was 84%. Wow. Right? So a Big huge spread. difference. Uh, and we think New it's York per- is with the college degree and somewhere in the middle country without. By and large. Yeah. Right? And, and, and there are a couple of rational explanations for this, right? It could be that um, more sophisticated, higher level work clusters and higher wage economies like, like New York. Right, so uh, so truly, a worker does need a college degree more often in New York than than in Des Moines, let's say. Um, but it could, there's also some research to suggest that um, some employers may be up credentialing, so they may be asking for a college degree even if the work, the day to day work, doesn't require one. Yeah. Um, and so, some future research that I, that um, we hope to come out with later this year, early next year, will look at the specific skills that employers are asking for. And uh, in order to see if, uh, first of all, if if it makes sense that in some places someone needs a college degree and in other places someone doesn't, but then also to potentially identify um, career origins and destinations in a metropolitan area that have very similar skills but different levels of pay. So if we could find a way to connect low, someone in a low-wage job um, to a higher-wage job that requires very similar skills – uh, then that's that's what we're hoping to to achieve through our next report. The um, any other big picture things on where you're focused on and and what and ha- people want to get involved or or get engaged with uh, the research that your group is focused on. You know, I would encourage I would encourage any of your listeners who are interested to learn more about this research or any other any other research that we're uh, that's underway to to contact me again. It's at the, I'm in the community development department at the Philadelphia Fed. Uh, I would love to talk more about the work and and if uh, and and share uh, share the lessons and and get a conversation started. Very good. We've been talking with Keith Wardrip, who's the community development research manager at the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank. Very interesting new research, uh, and it's great to have you coming down across from across town from the Philadelphia Fed. Thanks for coming down. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks to our producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer Dion Simpkins. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.